Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we're going to be talking to the former Daily Telegraph editor Charles Moore about Margaret Thatcher, whose heavyweight three-part biography has just been completed. Um, first though, I'm joined by Prospect's own um, Alex Dean, who it has to be said um, was born a few years after uh, Margaret Thatcher was shunted out of Downing Street. So Alex, whereas my own childhood into my early teens were dominated like in terms of the news and everything by um margaret thatcher to you she's just a figure of history i guess yes she's totally in the past um i mean obviously her shadow looms large over the party uh the conservative party and the country um i think my figure who um I had an equivalent sort of (laughs) relationship with was tony blair Mm. that you maybe had with thatcher and that he was kind of the monster um a caricature almost uh, of something to be scared of and that was the figure that I grew up with (laughs) um, everyone hating around me but did you were you aware of um with Thatcher like her as a as a big presence as a guy you know when you were 10 or 11 or 12 would you would you've known much about her or would she just have been as irrelevant as Stanley Baldwin or something I think she was definitely more relevant than that um and very quickly just even, you know, before I was uh, anything like as political as I am now, you get the sense that she ha- she still has so many disciples. Mm. <laughs> um, so she's relevant in that sense. Um, and then, of course, like kind of get older and older. And now as a political journalist, she's incredibly relevant because she's got these heirs in the party. Um, you know, the neo-Thatcherites who want to kind of uh, deregulate Britain. They think that Europe's holding us back and, you know, the Reese Moggs and so on. Um, Not many of the younger generation of conservatives would openly disavow her. I mean, even David Cameron, who wanted to modernise and move beyond Thatcherism and all that, he was careful about it because he knew he had to be. But you've been talking to some of the old guard, haven't you, who got slightly less doubts than youngsters about dissing the Thatcher legacy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I spoke to Michael Heseltine fairly recently about... um, the Tory party's record on Europe and his view was basically that um, we achieved Britain achieved a huge amount on the continent in the 80s under Thatcher the Conservative Party he thinks is kind of the party of Europe by rights it, you know it, the expansion of the single market um, you know eliminating trade barriers and so on which kind of Thatcher at her best <laughs> in his view and actually in mine um, 
and it's a tragedy in his view that the party is now turning against its own achievements um and we had a really good piece on the website recently by david anderson the lawyer um who worked in the private office of lord cockfield um who was part of all this um the single yeah. european act it, and all that. yeah exactly mm. that um and he basically was making exactly the same point and um you know he's a fair bit younger than heza but the overarching principle that it's um thatcher's legacy on europe is actually uh could be something for remainers to celebrate at least if you take it in chunks and mm. you look at the right bit if you <laughs> of, stop in 1987 sharp which actually is where charles moore's new book begins so i'll be um fairly careful to make sure i talk to him about that that pivot um and uh what are your thoughts about her as a like wider cultural figure obviously she's got some significance symbolically simply by being the first woman prime minister she turned the terms of the debate not just on europe but on things like markets what the government should be doing and shouldn't be doing although some people since are saying that we had a big pivot with margaret thatcher and just now we're still pivoting back away from her what do you th- what are your thoughts on that yeah um i think the main thing i think about thatcher now when i think about politics is I mean, everyone always asks that question of whether Brexit would have happened without austerity. And it was a knife-edge vote. And you think, well, realistically, probably not. Mm. I mean, whatever you think about austerity, probably not. Just, uh, you know, put on the probabilities. Um, and I wonder the same question about Thatcher. If, you know, would, would Brexit have happened if we hadn't have had the uh, plans that she implemented in the 80s in the North and so on? Um, I, don't, I don't know. In fact, actually, I think it probably <laughs> wouldn't have happened. So she continues then, in your view, as a youngster, to haunt the political scene. Well, let's go over now and meet Charles Moore, who is the man who has dedicated 20 years of his life now to chronicling Margaret Thatcher's life. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
Welcome, Charles. Now, all the reviews, including one upcoming in Prospect, are agreed that in terms of primary research and writing this new volume, based as it is on literally hundreds of interviews and thousands of documents, is, like your trilogy as a whole, a titanic achievement. So congratulations. But as well as the book, we need to talk about the woman herself. The volume covers the years in which she was at her most uncompromising and also the years in which income inequality shot out of control. And I'm interested in your sense of whether or not she cared a jot about that. Mrs Thatcher didn't believe in economic equality uh, because of what she believed about socialism, which was that in its attempt to equalise, it found it much easier to lower than to raise and that it, uh, it identified uh, successful things and attacked them rather than uh, failing things and uh, giving them more opportunity. So um, uh, she believed that um, you should, that opportunity uh, and freedom were the key issues um, in economics and that these will tend to the general good. Obviously they didn't uh, work to the general good in every case. Um, so that would be her the in her mind, the justification for her position. Um, uh, there was a famous speech she made when she was still leader of the opposition in New York, I think, when she said, um, let our children grow tall and some taller than others if they have the capacity or something like that. Yeah, so she's so an out-and-out inegalitarian, if you, if you like. Um, and obviously that gives rise to very different reactions in different places. Whilst you were, a, I think, a political columnist at The Telegraph, I was a child growing up in Yorkshire where you know she was almost literally a monster at my grandmother's 60th I remember some grown-ups telling me she was in the next room that's when I was seven when I was eight <laughs> a week after the Brighton yeah. bomb and I remember my mother thinking this was appalling my socialist mother but one of the neighbors had got Margaret Thatcher as a guy on the fire you know mm, it, it's yeah. tasteless but it gives you a sense of how raw the emotions were in much of the country uh, it does um I think that though they certainly did strongly exist, um, they are exaggerated. Um, if if they were as great as people say, she would never have won general elections. Um, and they, those emotions were not, uh, didn't run over, let's say, everybody who considered themselves working class in the North, for example. I mean, th take the phenomenon of working miners. You know, one reason Scargill's strike failed is because roughly a third of the miners refused to go on strike. Very, very important. And Mrs. Thatcher was very close to them and had secret meetings with them and so on. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a more, it's not such a black and white picture as perhaps you're suggesting. But I think um, she certainly was very polarizing. And to some extent, though obviously nobody likes being hated, she intended it in the sense that one of her aims in politics was to get people to make up their mind. Mm. What she saw as the problem of the 1970s was that people knew there were big problems, but they couldn't quite confront them. So actually, it was a cross-party view, for example, that trade union leaders had too much power, but nobody would quite sort of tackle it. And so she sort of she said, "Come on, are you with me or against me? Are we going to do this or not?" Yes, I've heard her quote some poem where it's, "If you're not making any enemies, you're not making you're not doing any good." You have my, no enemies, my friend. Um, uh, you have no enemies, you say, my friend, your boast is poor. Um, uh, it's a poem um, by um, a Scottish socialist, actually, about, um, uh, you know, you have to make enemies in order to um, achieve your um, 
results because you you are confronting things that are difficult to confront and people who won't like it. Now, while you open our eyes to her capacity to engage, don't know if you like the word, but intellectually in progressive ways, especially say on climate change, I'm still interested to know if um, counter to the monster I was brought up, you think she could engage empathetically. You've got Brian Griffiths, who's one of her senior aides, saying she wasn't heartless, she told him she was Victorian. But isn't a Victorian definition of heartlessness, you know, almost a definition that carries on as if Charles Dickens had never been written? It, well, it, no, it because Charles Dickens himself was Victorian. And, well, yes, and the of spirit course, of improvement and social reform were very, very strong in the Victorian era. And that's what she was trying to talk about. I mean, I see why um, people ask this question, but the classic uh, part, um, answer to it lies in her famous interview with Woman's Own where she said there's no such thing as society. Yes. And those who wish to see it this way thought that she was asserting um, naked individualism. She really wasn't. And if you read the whole of the interview, mm. and, and I discuss this in the book... You've got a chapter on it. Uh, well, it's a part of a chapter, yes. Mm. It really is unsustainable to say that's what she's saying. What she's saying, if she were a modern person, she would say there's no such thing as society, and she would put quote marks in the air with her fingers. People didn't do that then. But <laughs> um, uh, w She's asking, almost like a scientist, trying to understand the composition of something, what is this thing we call society? And she says it's made up of individuals... Uh, and families. And the reason she's saying that is not because it doesn't matter, but because it does. She's trying to bring it home to everybody that is their responsibility to bring it together and make it work. So actually what she's advocating, I think, really, is a sort of Methodist idea, which was often very much influenced by socialism and also influenced socialism, but wasn't exactly socialist, of a Christian social order uh, in Britain. Um, sort of grew out of Protestantism. And um, that's what she's hoping for, in which people have their rights. Um, and because they have their rights, they have to uh, fulfil their responsibilities. And yet you also describe, and you're very upfront about this in, in, in the book, that um, th there's a paradox here, which is while she's pushing her conception of liberty, particularly um, in terms of letting people do what they want in the marketplace, mm -hmm. Um, the kind of good human beings that you might want to fulfil that Methodist order don't necessarily come forward. Instead, you've got people who might like gambling and pornography and yes. easy divorces and God knows what else. She, she embodied in herself um, a, a, an eternal tension that exists between, um, and often exists in, in the same person as it did with her, between a liberal approach to life and a, and a conservative approach to life. And I think she would have said in answer to this, though I can't think of a particular quote, that, um, well, actually, there is a quote she used from Confucius, which she wrote in her commonplace book. Um, the, the, uh, you, need, you, you need people to be free, but you need them to benefit from the tradition and history and teaching of people who've come before. Um, and therefore, institutions, uh, national independence, um, uh, religion and so on matter a great deal as well as people's freedom and the fact that you're free doesn't mean that all the choices you make as a free person are good obviously it's part of the freedom is to be bad as well as to be good and it's you're right that it did distress her when she saw um a sort of loads of money characters um obviously if there's more money around there'll be more visible loads of money characters mm. uh, but that distressed her but it wouldn't 
lead her to believe that what she was doing was wrong. Let's move on to international relations, which consumes quite a, a big chunk of the book and was the stage of her premiership where she was most dominant, I guess, on the world stage. Um, it's a very mixed story, isn't it? Catastrophic mishandling by the sounds of things of Helmut Kohl, but like a very early, insightful and, dare I say, an empathetic kind of relationship with Gorbachev. It's quite quite true. Um it wasn't too bad with Cole early on where they both agreed about the installation of cruise and Pershing missiles in the early 80s. But um, towards the end, she was very, very distressed with the European community's way of doing things. And she particularly disliked Cole in this respect um, because he was so keen on European unity um, and moving towards ever closer union. Also with Jacques Delors on that. Um, but also she did dislike him because he embodied in her mind sort of Germanness, and she had a, a Second World War dislike of the Germans, which she could often suspend in particular cases. And indeed, she admired Germany's economic recovery, but she couldn't get out of her head a fundamental suspicion of Germany because of uh, and the past. And um, not being a very tactful woman, she said to Helmut Kohl um, at the end of the just when the whole end of the Cold War, when the reunification of Germany was coming up, she met him at one of these conferences and she said, twice in the last century, sorry, twice in this century, we've had to come and rescue Europe from you and now you're back again. <laughs> um, and um, so naturally he wasn't very pleased with it. Um, uh, so you're right that it's a, um, a painful moment for her, the reunification of Germany in particular, because... Um, in a way, it was absolutely what she'd been working so hard for and very successfully about the end of the Cold War. Mm. The peaceful transition to a democratic, pluralistic order and the defeat of communism, absolutely perfect, what she'd always been calling for. But the price of the reunification of Germany, particularly when it was associated by the European community with greater European integration and the creation of a single currency, was very high for her. And she couldn't properly reconcile these two and this isolated her at the very end from uh, particularly Cole and George Bush yes um, and of course it isolated her back back home as well didn't it but yes of course, I, it was a contributory to her fall very much yeah I mean we do want to focus mostly on on, on Thatcher and her times rather than the echo for now but it, we can't resist bringing up Brexit now um, sure. we know that she was pro um EEC as then was in 1975 and through to the creation of the single market. Now, the the conventional story mm. we tell is she liked it thus far as it was a free trading thing and then it all got a bit too regulatory and protected and she thought it was socialism by the back door. But I think what you're alluding to there is that there might be a different um, geopolitical way of reading her pivot against Europe so that she liked it when it was you know, an adjunct to NATO. It was part of standing up to the Soviet Union. But as soon as that was no longer necessary, she started to see it maybe as a um, a backdoor for German domination of the continent again. Do you think that's right? I think that is essentially right. Um, so she took, actually, I'm not sure how aware she was, that she took a classic British foreign policy attitude to Europe, which is that you don't want one power dominating the continent of Europe. Yeah. Um, and uh, and she also, you're absolutely right, um, uh, saw the EC as a sort of useful adjunct to NATO in the early days. And she also feared that if you did have one power dominating um, the continent of Europe, it would become 
but more anti-American, and that it mm. would encourage the Americans, which she was always trying to discourage them from disengaging with Europe. She always wanted to keep Americans in the European continent militarily and to maintain a political interest in it. So, of course, it's distressing for her that Bush saw it in a different way. Mm. Um, so that is the tra trajectory. And I, But I also think there is the basic thing never left her, even when she was at her most pro-European, which is um, we, Britain, should be an independent nation with a democratic system which can you can um, elect your rulers and get rid of them. And she did not like that about the fact that you could do neither of those things with the European community. And that's where she got to by the end of her time, shortly before she fell. Um, and at the Rome, the Rome summit at the end of October 1990. So this is a month or so before she goes. Yes, exactly. Um, she got very angry indeed because they insisted on pushing forward with the single currency, the Delors plan. Um, and she came home in a rage and I happened to um, meet her at a reception at number 10 that night and she came sort of beetling up. She could be very, very unguarded, which is great if you're a journalist. Mm. But, um, <laughs> um, and she said um, that, that we should put this to the British people. Do the British people want the people they elect to rule them mm. or do they want to be ruled by people they can't elect and can't get rid of? I thought, wow, that's interesting. Very clearly stated and also not government policy. Mm. That struck me very much. And it never became um, government policy, did it, no, under her? Uh, under her, no. Well, there was no time left, really, because if for her government. But um, she wasn't actually saying at that moment referendum, but she was really talking more about a, an election. But then, um, after Geoffrey Howe resigned and the challenge came and the contest came, she gave several press interviews, one of them to me, in which she explicitly said um, there should be a referendum on the single currency. So she put the referendum idea back in the system, which had been in abeyance since uh, 1975. That's very significant politically and very distressing for Geoffrey, Michael Heseltine, and indeed uh, people who were still ministers of the government, like Douglas Hurd and John Major. So um, she really put the cat among the pigeons, and I think all that, all that contributed to her why her cabinet ministers were against not why the population was more against her but why the cabinet ministers were against her at the end of her time the population in general and backbenchers were more concerned about the poll tax but the at the top yeah. was europe and um and therefore she'd sown this seed and ever therefore you can trace this genealogy to brexit because all through the 90s there was ever endless referendum talk mm. the referendum party which mrs thatcher favored though obviously she didn't vote for it um by the time of the 97 election campaign, I think all the parties were committed to a referendum just because they were frightened. On the single uh, currency. Yes. And so the idea continued. It developed according to what so there should be on... The Constitution. You know, it should be on the Constitution, else. Lisbon, so on and so on. And finally, we get to Cameron making the promise before the 2015 election and fulfilling it uh, the year after. And, and that, again, as well as the substantive question of Europe, is a swerve, isn't it? Because back in the 70s, I'm sure I've read quotes from her calling the referendum, you know, the tool of despots or whatever, which is how traditionally English people... Yes, though she it. did... Yes, though she... Uh, I, uh, that's right. Um, I think she quotes somebody else as saying that, but she quotes it with approval. Mm. But actually, there are examples. I'm sorry, I can't immediately call them to mind what the subjects were, but she did surprise people by proposing referendums on one or two other things. She always... It, um, it was a sort of escape route for her when um, she was trying to push an idea which most of her colleagues didn't want. Mm. I'm sorry, it's in the book. But I simply can't remember what it was, but there was at least one occasion when she said, well, maybe this is suitable for a referendum. And... Um, uh, she was always conscious that her party, uh, 
particularly at a senior level, would be reluctant about some of the things that she wanted to do. And she believes that she had a bigger reach towards the wider population on some issues than most of her colleagues. And, and so she would sort of invoke that. So, I mean, clearly she was instrumental in both this idea of a referendum and in the kind of anti-European turn of, of, of the British discourse. Like, Do you think she'd be quite happy with the situation if she were looking on now? Well, I, I'm sorry to be a sort of party pooper, but I always refuse to do the would she question because mm. I think my only selling point is knowing what she did do. Okay. And, you know, when there's a question of what she would do, your guess is as good as mine. And... Um, uh, well, it's probably not. Well, no, no, but people always people always project what they sort of want by saying mm. Winston Churchill would be turning in his grave if yeah, sort of yeah, that yeah. type of thing, and you know they just mean they. This is their view. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what is true is that the trajectory of her opinions changed. So after she left office, she did explicitly, though not publicly, become pro um, le- uh, leaving, and she would say that to quite a lot of people, including me. But her advisor said, "Don't say it." publicly because it's going to cause so much division in the Tory party mm. and you know you're you're an old lady sort of thing um, as but, indeed she was and there's a, a whole hundred plus pages in the book on on, on those yeah. final um years where there's a, a, a human side that is obviously important but of course she's still intensely political and coming back to the question of how hard she remained uh, for, for, for someone who'd grown up in the way that I did um very struck by this business of her sending a bottle of scotch to General Pinochet when he's on the yes. run for, um, you know, running a regime of torture. But because he was on the right side, it does suggest a morality where loyalty, in this case to Britain over the Falklands, trumps anything else. It certainly trumps a lot in her mind. Um, but um, it wasn't actually the issue of torture. If he, if he committed torture, she would not have condoned that. The point here no, was... No, no, I didn't mean to say she would. It's no, like, it's the point here is, is her idea of a legal order. There are two very big points in her mind always. First, loyalty, the one you've noticed is completely true because of the secret importance of Chile in winning the Falklands War. Um, uh, but secondly, um, her idea of a legal order, what happened with Pinochet is that he was arrested under the warrant, if that's the right word, of a judge in Spain, mm. uh, but executed in Britain. Mm. And it seemed to her absolutely unjust when he was the sub- subject of an amnesty in his own country, which his own country had carefully constructed to um, make sure there was peace in Chile, mm. um, that this could then be broken open by international, as she saw it, politically motivated legal intervention. That was her big beef. Mm. And so she thought, if anybody wants to try this gentleman, it should be Chile, and it shouldn't be uh, a Britain abetting politically motivated um, uh, attempts to arrest him um and of course also she was in the sort of club of ex-leaders who never liked the idea that they might be (laughs) (laughs) have a handcuff shoved on them somewhere in the world um and then going back to the foreign policy point this person who's quite narrow and rigid in some ways about the germans and about maybe this insistence on order above all else is then creative when it comes to Gorbachev, spotting early that this is, in the famous phrase, before he's even leader, isn't it? That, you know, this is a man I could do business with. Yes. How did she see that potential when others didn't? And how important was it for the world? It was important. Um, Mrs. Thatcher wasn't actually rigid. She was certainly fierce, Mm. but she wasn't rigid. She always resisted strategy. People, particularly who worked in business, you would say, come on, Margaret, you've got to have a strategy. And she said, no, no, politics isn't like that. 
we'll just what she she used to phrase we'll get stuck on graph paper. What she had she's quite she had yeah she had long aims, Mm. big aims and big beliefs, but not strategy as a business wouldn't would see it. She hated Soviet communism. And she particularly hated it not so much for geopolitical reasons, but because of the oppression of the peoples of the Soviet bloc. So she was new, and unlike any previous British Prime Minister except perhaps Churchill, she didn't see it in terms of just of interstate relations. She saw it in terms of what's it like being a pole under these bastards or wh- mm. whatever. Um, and so she was terrifically popular in those countries for for, for that reason. And um, having achieved successfully the um, new generation of Cruz and Pershing. Uh, missiles and therefore shown the Russians that we could outgun them literally really and also that we had more money to do it Mm. she wanted to take advantage of that to look for change and she found it in Gorbachev she was well advised but he wasn't the leader just as interesting to point out when she had that checkers meeting December 84 he wasn't even the Soviet leader at that time so it was pretty smart Mm. Um, uh, and um, she um, she thought now there is a basis there's a, a good faith basis for conversation. And she could see that we were winning the Cold War. So maybe in the Soviet system is someone who's going to change it. It's the same view she took about F.W. de Klerk in South Africa. You know, she'd got nowhere with P.W. Berta, But F.W. de Klerk, she realized, did want to bring about the end of apartheid. So don't exclude them, engage. Mm. And um, Nelson Mandela, in when still in prison, was very, very... A and C were pretty anti-Mrs. Thatcher, of course, but he was very impressed specifically by her Gorbachev point because he applied it to South Africa. He thought, well, wow, if that can be done by her, you know, we need a Gorbachev in South Africa. And interestingly, I think he not only meant de Klerk, as it appeared, but in a way he meant himself because he meant I can reach across in a way that people won't think I could and therefore the whole situation changes. And he, was, he took specifically the Thatcher um, example in that respect. Um, and her particular importance, you asked how important it was. Obviously, she wasn't the most important person because Ronald Reagan was, but she was very persuasive to Reagan on the subject because she met Gorbachev first. The Americans needed a lot of persuading. She flew extraordinary week when she saw Gorbachev in Chequers on a Sunday. Um, she flies to, Hong, to China to sign the Anglo-Hong Kong agreement. She flies to Hong Kong to sell it. These are mm. sort of all in literally in a week. And then she flies to Washington, D.C. to persuade um, uh, uh, Reagan about Gorbachev. Uh, so it's a pretty, you can see it's a pretty sort of dramatic week in the history of mm. uh, world affairs. And she's doing it all the time. It, it, it did matter a lot. A final question. Um, you've dedicated 20 years of your life to, to doing this book. I know there was a bit before Downing Street and a bit after, but... That kind of means you spent probably as much on the Downing Street years, more years writing the Downing Street years than she did living. Uh, yes, more or less, yeah. Um, so you kind of got to know, and you knew her, of course, in, in, in person as as well. Um, she, she's sort of quite, um, despite the, the flexibility there you talk about, quite a, um, seems from the outside, a haughty, firm kind of not particularly humorous kind of yeah. uh, subject to deal with. I mean, d- did you ever like wish you were dealing with someone who was a bit more fun? Uh, no, she was fun. She wasn't humorous. She wasn't, she had a very female sensibility. So she didn't like jokes in the way that men make jokes. You know, there's, the, hey, there's an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman, that sort of joke. She, hate, she couldn't understand them at all. Particularly rude jokes, of course. No idea what. Uh, <laughs> uh, but she was fun because she was so animated and electric. 
So she would, and also she was sort of flirtatious. I mean, she was, of course, a very proper lady, mm. but she loved men and she, she wanted to sort of engage. So everything was sort of fiery and exciting. And also she camped up herself. She knew she had this act. So she did it. Right. Um, okay. And um, she would, I don't know, sort of, as it were, sort of almost camply sort of knock you with her handbag, that sort of, uh, um, and um, she, haughty was not the right word, fierce, yes, mm. arrogant in a way, but not haughty because she had no belief in hierarchy. In fact, she had a reverse belief in hierarchy. So she was horrible to her senior colleagues and incredibly nice to secretaries, mm. porters, drivers. They all loved her. Um, <laughs> and she would absolutely without... Pompot says she'd you know, take her shoes off in their presence or whatever, and she'd sometimes even cook them simple meals in the flat and mm. you know, get worried because they had a cold or that their children were ill or something like that um, in a very womanly way, whereas she'd been you know, utter bastard to Geoffrey Howe. And um, <laughs> I think, obviously, it wasn't nice of her to be an utter, ba utter bastard to Geoffrey Howe, but I think she had it the right way round. Do you see what Great. I mean? Great. Okay. Charles Moore, thank you very much Thanks. indeed. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. That's all for this week. Um, thank you very much for listening. Charles Moore's authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher, that third volume, Herself Alone, it's called, is now out in bookstores. Rebecca Liu is our producer. If you've enjoyed this Prospect podcast, then please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you again next time and goodbye. Thank you.